and welcome to the Stat Dose Podcast. My name is Joe Francis. And I'm Matt Young. And this is Stat Medical Topics. So hi guys and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing upper GI bleeds and uh, we're going to do a bit of an overview of upper GI bleeds as a pathology. We're going to talk a little bit about the differences between upper GI bleeds, lower GI bleeds, talk about some causes, some features, signs and symptoms that you should be looking out for and then take a little bit of a deeper dive into the um, investigations and management that we need to be undertaking with these patients. Absolutely, yeah. So we're probably going to start with with a definition, really, which is probably the best way to start uh, these podcasts, um, it was it was kind of an eye opener to me when I sort of read the textbook definition of an upper GI bleed because it's a bleed from anywhere in the GI tract except the colon, mm. which just seems because obviously the GI tract is a very long thing. <laughs> um, you know, to me, an ideal bleed doesn't sound like it should be an upper GI bleed, mm. but I suppose in practice, you know, the definition is is, is different and. The majority of the upper GI bleeds that you see will come from the stomach, the esophagus, you know, the duodenum. But you've got to remember, I suppose, the textbook definition doesn't include anything from the upper GI tract at all. So basically anything that isn't in the large intestine. And why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because they're common. They're a very common presentation to emergency departments, to medical teams. Um, and they have a very high mortality. It's about 10% mortality from acute bleeds, which is, which is really quite high. Bearing in mind we get maybe one or two of these you know, a day through the department, and actually, if you think ten percent of those patients are probably not going to survive, that's that's quite a lot of people. So, moving on to to causes, then, um, as I alluded to earlier, the, the most common cause uh, is peptic ulcer disease. The other most common cause are esophageal or uh, gastric varices. Um, these are going to be sort of about seventy percent of of the causes for the acute GI bleeds that you see. There are less common causes that you need to be aware of. Uh, things like esophagitis, gastritis. Um, some upper GI malignancies can present with uh, with acute upper GI bleeds, and mallory vice tears as well, which are where you get small uh, breaks in the stomach lining, typically after a vomiting illness. And then the rare causes we don't tend to worry about too much are the vascular malformations and things like fistulas. So you can get um, uh, aorto enteric fistulas. Mm. It, those are those are rare, fortunately, because the mortality for them is especially high. Um, if you start bleeding out from a major artery, then there's very little you can do to to prevent it, really. So those are the main causes. Joe, do you want to do some talking? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I can do some talking, I suppose. So, I mean, we talked about the the, the causes of these um, upper GI bleeds, and I guess that then leads us on to think about what are the risk factors um, for for getting these this specific pathology and um, and also then how do we and we're going to kind of go through this throughout the podcast but how do we differentiate mm. a upper GI bleed from a lower GI bleed when when quite a lot of the um, symptomatology can can cross over so risk factors for upper GI bleeds specifically when you look in the kind of textbook risk factor list you will see that increased age is a is a risk factor for, for upper GI bleeds as it is in fact for general pathology and death in, just and be, death just being um, generally ill yeah but but of course um thinking about differentiating between upper and lower GI bleeds what we tend to see is that upper GI bleeds um predominantly present in our younger patients comparatively to those lower GI bleeds other risk factors to, to have a think about are excessive use of NSAIDs, 
Um, any patient who um, may have alcohol dependence or significant alcohol intake, patients with uh, chronic kidney disease for their increased risk of um, peptic ulcer disease, and essentially uh, any risk factors or in fact ongoing portal hypertension. All of these uh, risk factors will uh, lead you to be at a higher risk of upper GI bleed and we can even start thinking about what are the causes of that so pe peptic ulcer disease can be caused by a variety of different factors and you start, have to start thinking about kind of your helicobacter pylori and all of that sort of stuff within that scenario and whether that in fact these patients have had that kind of previously yeah, yeah. been treated and they're still at risk for that kind of moving forward so a lot of risk factors to to have a, a think about but you know, often these patients can present, and um, you might not have time to actually think about those risk factors because these patients can be extremely unwell. Yeah, right. So that was a, a nice little brief uh, sort of overview of what upper GI bleeds are um, and some causes and risk factors that we need to be aware of. In terms of presenting features and signs of symptoms, Joe, where um, where do these patients present to, and what do they present with? There's a quite a lot of stuff. Um, that we have to think about in terms of presentations and you know usually upper GI bleeds they're going to be presenting to you um, and they're going to be quite unwell yes. is, the, is the general thing that we're kind of going with here. You might be seeing these patients initially in primary care but generally these patients are probably going to um, arrive up at the um, emergency department and, and actually having a patient who's quite hemodynamically unwell is quite a good sort and sieve for thinking about upper GI versus lower GI yeah. bleeds. If we're looking at somebody, and again, because this is medicine, this isn't every single time, but, <laughs> ge but generally speaking, if we're looking at patients and they are appearing hemodynamically unstable, I think we can assume that these patients have upper GI bleeds and to proven otherwise in comparison to a, a lower GI bleed. It's much safer to do that because the, the mortality from upper GI bleeds is so much higher. Mm. So I think, you know, rather than trying to, to, to be too clever, just assume it's an upper GI bleed and, and treat it as such. Absolutely. And um, moving on to kind of what, what signs and symptoms we, we're going to find. So, of course, we're going to be doing an ABCDE approach on anyone who's presenting with a potentially hemodynamically st unstable state. And so we're going to be finding within this ABCDE signs and symptoms of shock, whether that's pallor, whether they're tachypneic, tachycardic, hypotensive, and then looking for signs of symptoms in disability and exposure environment um, in and around the, the kind of abdominal region that would lead you to think that this is an abdominal pathology. Mm. Specifically thinking about signs that the and symptoms that patients are complaining of, patients may come to you and present with hematemesis, so it's a bright red vomit. In, in particular, with patients who are presenting with esophageal varices, which are quite a scary presentation, these... Very messy presentation. It's a very messy <laughs> presentation, and this hematemesis can be projectile. And personally, experiencing this um, as a clinician in the back of a, an ambulance, the, these patients can cover the, the back of an ambulance with projectile vomit, which is particularly difficult to manage and can really show you how much these patients can actually bleed. It's almost a rite of passage, I think, when we get new doctors through emergency departments, so they, they must at some point get a bit of hematemesis on them, mm. and then they have their, I've been to ED badge. Yeah. You know, you walk into recess sometimes, it's all on, it's they've like, repainted the ceiling red. And yeah. Oh no, it's just, it's just hematemesis. So, so it is, is particularly devastating, uh, projectile uh, variceal bleeding. 
other sorts of, of vomit that you can, whilst we're on this lovely topic, that we can kind of present <laughs> with is this kind of coffee ground vomit, which is more more usual, I would say. That's a symptom mm. that I, I see more often. This is often sort of misdiagnosed as a bit of dark vomit, but you can actually see this blacker, darker vomit that looks like actual coffee grounds on, on in a lot of instances that is very associated with upper GI bleeds. Going down the other end now and thinking about <laughs> the it, thinking about stools, uh, there, there are a lot of questions that, that we tend to ask about this um, in terms of have you been bleeding rectally or, or within your stools and we use this quite often to determine between an upper and a, and a lower GI bleed. So Molina is something that we've probably all heard of and if you have seen it um, and or witnessed it and kind of been there experienced it and smelt it um, you won't you won't forget what Molina is so Molina is black tarry stools and uh, is essentially a very offensive uh, smelling sticky stool that leads us to think that there may be an upper GI bleed going on although you can present with a low GI bleed with Molina something that's more prominent with a upper GI bleed that would that would definitely be more pathognomonic would be hematochesia where you're bleeding bright red fresh blood um, from a brisk upper GI bleed and so it's essentially not not really had any time to sit around yeah. in the alimentary canal and you're b- bleeding rectally. So just going back to Molina thinking about differentials for that your stools can actually be turned black through various products that you can sort of take anything containing bismuth so your uh, Pepto-Bismol and any other of those bismuth containing products that you can get over the counter licorice and famously iron supplements is probably something that we're all aware of to, to sort of ask about but if a patient is presenting with black stools with iron supplements it's going to be very very different from a unwell patient presenting with sticky tarry offensively smelling melina so one of the key words there is sticky yeah uh, lots of patients say it took me like three or four times to flush it and that's usually those of bleach that that stickiness is key yeah i think another little thing i'll just add in there is uh, as a big drinker myself um, uh, <laughs> a, a connoisseur, <laughs> a connoisseur of alcohol connoisseur of as ale. opposed to a dependent um, yes as opposed to alcohol. Um, <laughs> i do i do enjoy so it's winter now i do enjoy a stout or a porter yes by the fire they can also turn your stools black which i found to my dismay when i was about 17 Okay. Oh my god, I'm um, So, yeah, just another one to add into the, the black poo mix. I'm imagining a sort of you in a kind of tartan robe pipe, <laughs> stout by the fire, country manor house. Am I, yeah. am I anywhere close uh, to. I, I, exactly where I live. I live in the country manor. Okay. Um, my, my, my butler brings me stout on the, on the train. Excellent. Really nice. Excellent. <laughs> so, just to, just to finish up those features before we go into investigations, obviously, we're going to be thinking about asking the patient about pain and doing our OPQRST or Socrates alongside that. Pain may or may not be present. It often is and it often is epigastric in origin, although we we all have to be aware of of clearly referred pains, the common issue with abdominal pain and how um, it's very, very difficult to localise a lot of the time. So relying on some of those other features, hematemesis, coffee ground vomit, hematochesia, melina, and systemically or, or rather hemodynamically unwell presenting patients will kind of put you down that line a little bit more. Thinking about shocked patients, if you've got patients who are, who are complaining of any of those symptoms and they've had a syncopal or pre-syncopal event, that would increase my pretest probability that something is going on in the upper GI tract. Um, and then we just need to make sure that we ask about, in the, um, in the medications history, ask these patients about non-prescribed medications, the medications that they're going to be taking 
potentially over the counter, whether that is NSAID uh, or whether that is potentially some steroid use that, that may be on for um, a significant amount of time. I think one of the other keys just on that point is, is asking about recent illness because lots of patients will take a substance from you know a chemist or whatever and that it's got a small bit of ibuprofen in it or a small mm. bit of NSAID. So yeah. just make sure you ask though, you know, be thorough with your with your histories. Yeah. Um, and just make sure you don't you don't miss that. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of patients that don't realise that ibuprofen and the proxin and or mm. diclofenic exactly. or something like that are in the same drug group. Um, and so they may be prescribed with some naproxen for an ongoing yeah. problem and then get some over the counter ibuprofen. Um, and are already at risk for peptocostal disease through uh, increased alcohol intake or something like that, and they are just tripling their risk of GI bleeding. So Matt, we, we talked about some of the, the features, uh, signs and symptoms that we need to be looking out for in terms of upper GI bleeders. What investigations do we need to undertake when we're kind of going down we're funneling down and are thinking that we've got this patient that presenting up a GI. What do we do? So our, our key, obviously, we're going to do our ABC approach. Um, as part of that, we'll be able to take some blood tests off. Blood tests are particularly useful in upper GI bleeds. You're going to take a full a full raft of bloods. All the all the coloured tubes under the sun get filled up. Let's start with an FBC, so a purple top. Obviously, you're going to be looking checking a hemoglobin. This patient's bleeding. You want to know what the hemoglobin is. Just be aware that the haemoglobin will often uh, lag behind. So uh, if you're bleeding quite a lot, the haemoglobin might not reflect that uh, acutely. So you're going to want to be doing serial full blood counts. The other thing you're really interested in in the full blood count is the platelet level. Because as you as you bleed, obviously you're, you're using up your, uh, your clotting factors and you're using up, using up your platelets. Um, if the platelets get particularly low, a platelet transfusion might be considered under the advice of haematology. So a coagulation as well will be taken. This is a, the, the blue top bottle. We take those, obviously, uh, patients who are bleeding, we often take a coag to make sure there's no coagulopathy. The other reason we might take a coag in upper GI bleeds is because a lot of the patients, as, as we alluded to earlier, have alcohol or liver problems and your coagulation is deranged if you have a bit of liver failure. Obviously, your liver produces a lot of the clotting factors. And if you've got an INR of greater than 1.5 is what I go off clinically, some, some texts and some... Uh, units use other, other uh, figures, 1.8 for example, is the one that's thrown around, but personally I use, if the INR is greater than 1.5, then you're going to be wanting to correct that, possibly with fresh frozen plasma, um, sometimes with vitamin K if they're on something like warfarin or anticoagulation, or if they're on a NOAC or a DOAC or whatever you're supposed to call them now, um, you might consider something like Beriplex. Yeah, they're not novel anymore, are they? They're not they? novel, no, no, they're not. Um, other blood tests, so we're obviously going to take a, a group and save, uh, you know, a, a cross match. Um, that's in your, your pink top. We're likely to need to give these patients blood, certainly in the large bleed. So you want to get uh, your cross match in early. Um, and then your gold top, the three things really we're interested in. Well, maybe four things. I'll add a fourth thing to my list. Um, so LFTs, again, looking for evidence of liver failure, as we alluded to earlier. Bone profile, the reason we're looking at, or the interesting thing that we're, we're looking for in a bone profile is the calcium level. In massive transfusion or when you're giving repeated blood transfusions, you tend to drop your calcium and it's not uncommon for your calcium to drop so low that it needs replacing. Um, so that's what we're really looking for with the bone profile. CRP as well, because there's often a bit of concurrent infection. Infection may be a trigger uh, and certainly may be a consequence as well of upper GI bleeds. So you want to have a, at least a baseline CRP. And you're using these, obviously you want to check renal function. Really the urea is quite key in helping you diagnose an upper GI bleed. If you're bleeding a lot into your stomach or to the, into the upper upper GI tract and you start to digest that blood, 
And as your body digests that blood, it gets broken down into its key components and that will show with an isolated urea rise in, in blood tests. So the creatinine may well be at baseline, but you have a, an isolated urea rise. And that in combination with a low HB might suggest an upper GI bleed. So it's called a protein meal. You might hear that said in, in placement. So those are your key, your key blood tests, really. Imaging-wise, we don't tend to do anything acutely. It often doesn't add anything. The priority should be endoscopy. This is going to be immediately post-resuscitation. You want to get your patient as well resuscitated as possible before they go for their endoscopy because they're going to have, at minimum, sedation to have, this, have, the, have the endoscopy, if not a full GA, probably a full GA. And therefore, once the anaesthetist initiates induction, there's lots of vasodilatory drugs that they use. And if you've got a shocked patient with a low blood pressure already, that's going to make that the strain on their heart a lot worse. So you want to make sure that your patient is as resuscitated as possible. Endoscopy is sort of part of management. We'll talk a bit more about that uh, later. And endoscopy is also indicated within 24 hours if the patient is initially stable. Imaging-wise, again, just we'll mention that, as I said, it's not particularly useful acutely, but after an endoscopy, you might consider doing something like a CT scan um, just to help visualise the GI tract in a bit more detail, just trying to work out where that patient's bleeding from and help prognosticate them. Right, so that was a, just a, a, again a brief overview of the, the important investigations, particularly blood tests. I'm going to move on to, to management now. So Joe, how do we start managing these patients? I have no idea. You know, no idea? None at all. Okay, so <laughs> um, again, we alluded to initially uh, ABCDE. This is, this is the, the staple management that we're going to start off with. Thinking about the ABD, ABD approach. The ABC front is special ABD. Circulation is not important in upper <laughs> Should we cut that out just for my registration? <laughs> so thinking about ABCD approach to um, to this assessment and, and things that we're kind of really really looking at. These patients at airway, they're probably going to need um, oxygen therapy if they're looking shocked. Thinking about the, what I missed out in terms of circulation, <laughs> um, two wide bore cannulas. Fluid-wise, for addressing hypotension, really we want to be limiting the use of crystalloids, limited, so limiting our use of Hartmann's and or um, normal saline, which of course do not uh, replace any of the important things that we need to replace, so haemoglobin, clotting factors, etc., and can cause a dilution or coagulopathy. So we want to be replacing blood with blood as soon as possible. If there is a delay, then judicious use of 250 mil boluses of fluids is probably um, the best way to go whilst rapidly trying to seek those blood products. Mm -hmm. Considering, again, when you're seeking those blood products, whether actually you need to trigger a major hemorrhage protocol. And alongside that, in the last few years, we've probably all heard of the the, the, the rise of tranexamic acid um, and Sounds like a film. yeah, the, the rise of tranexamic acid. <laughs> well, part yeah. seven, rise. We're about to go off and get copyright for that film um, uh, right now um, before the Crash 2 collaborators come in and grab it from us because, of course, they listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> so in terms of tranexamic acid, there have been a couple of trials that have come out, um, specifically the Holtit trial, which is uh, looking into upper GI bleeds and tranexamic acid. Um, it's currently an, an unlicensed use of tranexamic acid. However, it's it's got quite a good safety profile. It's been used for numerous years in, I think, orofacial surgery and in cardiac surgery prior yeah. to actually coming on the scene as a um, as an antifibrinolytic for major trauma. And so we're we're seeing it used in 
uh, patients with major trauma. We're seeing it used um, in patients who have had massive maternal bleeding, specifically postpartum hemorrhage after the woman trial. Um, and now we're seeing it come into upper GI bleeds. And basically, people who are bleeding yes. are now starting to get tranexamic acid. So whilst it's an off-license utilization of tranexamic acid at the minute, it's not particularly harmful and may be beneficial. However, it'd be good to look at trust guidelines um, and kind of discussing with seniors before having a think about that. It has been shown in bleeding patients to reduce uh, transfusion needs and to have a mortality slash morbidity benefit. So it's definitely something that needs to be in your armamentarium for for upper GI bleeds and, and, and on that mental checklist. I mean, another useful resource is the very own, our very own Joe Francis uh, TXA, <laughs> which I've mentioned before and I will continue to mention. So <laughs> Plugging. If you, if you put it into Google, just put Joe Francis and Trenexamic Acid and he's... When was that written? When did you write that? Oh, I wrote that a long time oh, ago. It's probably out of date, but <laughs> have a look at it. Have a, look, have a little read. It's, it's I, worth a read. I get no financial benefits from this, just so that we're all clear. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, moving on from that kind of ABCD approach, initial, uh, initial resuscitation, what else can we do for these patients, Matt? Well, one of the key features, which we don't always think of, because certainly in, in, you, know, you get these, these patients who are bleeding extensively in resus, you know, messy bleeds that we talked about earlier, um, actually antibiotics should be a lot higher on our mm. priority list than they probably are, because we don't really think too much about them. And it's not because we think this patient has an infection, it's because actually the majority of patients who don't die from their bleed, who don't bleed out, die from infection over the next couple of days. Mm. And actually, obviously, if you've got lots of blood everywhere and you're unwell, then you're, you're at higher risk of developing an infection, developing sepsis. And so actually getting antibiotics on board early is actually really good for these patients and has proven to increase survival. So actually, we should probably consider antibiotics you know, alongside our, our hemorrhage control and our, our major trauma packs. One of the things that often gets difficult in practice is the use of IV PPIs, IV um, pantoprazole or omeprazole or whatever it is that you, you like to use. It's something that's sort of typically been taught that that's how we manage them and it is still used in practice. There's very limited evidence about them actually uh, actually working and it comes down to a sort of a risk versus benefit um, ratio. There's no real risk to it. There's probably not a great deal of benefit. But a lot of the gastroenterologists still like to give it, even though there's not a lot of evidence. But again, that's one of those things we sort of we sort of consider quite highly. Um, one of my personal things is if they've got pain, then I often give it um, routinely, assuming it's from sort of a, you know an inflammatory type response to a gastritis or an esophagitis. I think it's probably beneficial there. Um, but as I say, the, the the evidence there is is limited. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because theoretically, thinking about it, those PPIs actually uh, kind of block those cells for uh, anything up to 24 hours don't yeah. they and so actually the, it, you, you would theoretically think yeah. just as many things in medicine where you would theoretically yeah. think yeah. and are subsequently proven wrong but you would theoretically think that it then also reduces the risk of re-bleed perhaps and yeah. um, because you're reducing those that acid load in the stomach but it's interesting to to see that something so um so clearly theoretically obvious it yeah. isn't it doesn't actually prove out in practice so it's always something to to actually consider why am i giving it and, uh, and, and what is the evidence for this? Definitely. Another drug that we see quite commonly used, certainly in our sim industry, I think our, our, our fifth year, certainly this year, have been really good at saying we're terlipressin. Mm. Terlipressin isn't for all upper GI bleeds, and that needs to be made clear. Again, a lot of our students think it is. It's not. It's for variceal bleeds only. Um, it works by constricting the splanchnic 
uh, vessels, which help reduce bleeding and affect the, the portal hypertension there. So you have to have the portal hypertension for it to be effective. But yeah, telebreast is certainly something to consider if you're worried about varices or if you have evidence of previous varices. Otherwise, in terms of that sort of moving away from medication, there's balloon tamponading, um, which is quite dramatic if you put the, the same, I can't say the word, but the same stack and bleach more. Blink more to I can't say it, but um, balloon tamponading is a lot easier to say. You essentially put a, a it's basically an NG tube down into the stomach, and then you inflate it, and it's, it's like a large sort of sausage thing, really. It just, it just tamponades the vessels that are bleeding. Those are for your really sick sort of peri arrest, if not arrested patients. The success of it is quite low, um, but that's because you're using on patients who are that unwell that they're probably not going to survive anyway. But that's something to to consider. You might see that used these particularly unwell uh, patients. And as we talked about earlier, endoscopy is both both an investigation and a management. We use the Glasgow Blatchford score, or sometimes called GBS. Um, that's the most commonly used, the most effective scoring system they have for upper GI bleeds. There is the rock the Rockall score that you might sometimes see used in practice, um, but uh, Glasgow Blatchford is, is preferred. And this is quite a simple score. I won't tell you what it is because it's easy just to, to pop into Google or other search engines are available um, and it just helps identify which patients are high risk and which patients should have endoscopy and equally which patients are low risk and can be discharged and with appropriate follow-up. So in terms of endoscopy obviously you're putting a, an endoscope down into the stomach as I said earlier there's going to be a bit of sedation if not a GA. Here you're looking for things that are bleeding so going back to our causes is it, uh, is it a varicine or bleed, is it inflammation, is it you know malignancy or whatever. You might clip certain lesions, um, you might use band ligation if, if there are varices that are present, and you can inject things like fibrin or thrombin, um, sometimes with adrenaline, just to help clot off those bleeding areas. If endoscopy fails, or if there's, a, there's another bleed per, uh, post the initial endoscopy, then we might do another endoscopy. We might ask our interventional radiologists or our surgeons to have a look uh, and to see what management they can offer. But it depends on the lesion and the patient and whether they're a candidate for these, these sort of interventions. And that's what I was mentioning earlier about if the endoscopy fails or doesn't identify the appropriate lesion, then those patients might go on to have a CT abdomen or a CT angio looking for the responsible lesion. And that's when you're probably going to include or involve these surgeons and interventional radiologists in your management. The other thing that you, you will often see in practice, or maybe not often, but you you will hear about and read about uh, is a thing called TIPS, which is a transdrugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. Could you just say that one more time for us? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and basically, this is where you get um, a sort of a stent and a shunt uh, placed under interventional radiology, which goes via the uh, the portal vein to the to the yeah got that right, yeah, portal vein yeah. to the hepatic vein, um, and that reduces the portal uh, portal hypertension and reduces the risk of rebleeding. And we generally use that acutely if patients are bleeding and it can't be controlled by band ligation through, through endoscopy. Um, so those are your sort of your acute things. Uh, in terms of ongoing management, Joe, what sort of things do we need to think about? So really, in terms of long-term management, we really need to go back to our risk factors and, um, and think about how we can reduce that risk. So I guess the first thing is to invent some sort of time machine that could reduce the age of all of our pa- no, sorry. <laughs> um, so, on a more serious note, uh, thinking about uh, one of the most common causes of our upper GI bleeds being peptic ulcer disease. Yeah. Now, 
this used to be a very, very prevalent and, and in fact, untreatable disease mm. until the discovery of Helicobacter pylori and, and um, eradication therapies for this. And Helicobacter, Helicobacter pylori is, um, you know, it's, it's quite a fascinating bacteria and, and disease in its ability to to kind of break down that um, internal stomach environment and, and protective layer to get to the to, to the mucosa. Really, we need to be thinking if there's peptic ulcer disease present about Helicobacter pylori investigation and eradication, which will usually involve something like amoxicillin, clarithromycin, and um, and, and a PPI regimen, um, and then obviously changing that up dependent on uh, penicillin allergies and or dependent on local microbiology minimum inhibitory concentration stuff. Oh, wow. Um, so so yeah, um, looking at investigation and eradication for um, H. pylori and therefore peptidosis disease. Clearly, if um, these patients are at risk because of quite significant alcohol uh, dependence issues and or um, intake issues, then uh, recommending and trying alcohol abstinence and or reduction regimens, whether that's through in kind of primary care, through kind of psychotherapy, through rehabilitation and things, is, is a really, really good public health message to get out there. And then in general, thinking about acid suppression therapy, so whether that is through products like histamine uh, receptor antagonists like uh, like ranitidine or thinking about proton pump inhibitors again for kind of uh, chronic therapy so whether that's your um, omeprazole, lansoprazole these are the sort of things that we need to be thinking about moving forward in terms of long-term therapy for reducing the risk of re-bleeding in these patients and of course giving good information about uh, medications that they may be taking chronically or maybe getting over the counter that may increase their risk of upper GI bleed. So what we talked about before in terms of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or actually steroids themselves. So that's pretty much all we wanted to, to talk about really with this podcast. So we've been over the, the overview and the causes. As I said, the most common causes are peptic ulcer and esophageal or gastric varices. Uh, features, typically we're looking at hematemesis, coffee ground vomits and melina, investigations, looking at your blood tests, management-wise, ABC approach, two cannulas, blood resus, and actually antibiotics, think about high priority, and then uh, using a glasgow score to decide whether the patient should go for endoscopy, and then long-term management that we were, we were talking about. Joe, have you got a witty sign-off? Uh, I, I could try and make one off the top of my head, guys. So, so don't get your stomach in a knot uh, thinking about this podcast or listening to it, rather. And um, we'll catch you next time. I can't believe that you didn't. Ha! You didn't create one earlier. Oh yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, yours is better. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>